everyone. Welcome to episode 109 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And it is August 11th. It's been a crazy week here in Guilford, Connecticut. Yes. We had a <laughs> tropical storm and I've been told some tornadoes decided to make an appearance around town. Yeah. So I personally have been without power for going on a week tomorrow. I've been staying at the gentleman caller's house. He's been very kind. Yeah. <laughs> Taken over the house as both my place to live and an office. So that's great. Yeah. I, we had uh, 800,000 people in Connecticut lost power. We got our power back on Saturday, but we do have a generator, which... I'm so grateful now for that expenditure because it certainly came in handy. Yes, that's been the common sound you hear if you walk any neighborhood right now is yes. generators and chainsaws. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah. But the reason we decided even amongst all this craziness to get together is because we're super excited about this uh, interview we did with author Kathleen Rooney. Yes, her new novel, Cher Ami and Major Whittlesey is out today, August 11th. And we wanted to make sure you all knew about this book. And if you're so inclined to get a copy in your hands and give it a read, because we both really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a really interesting perspective. It's a World War One novel told from the vantage point of Major Whittlesey and Cherami, who's a homing pigeon. I just thought it was so unique. You know, I've read a pretty fair amount of World War One historical fiction. And I thought this just had such a very different perspective. And really well-researched. And Kathleen talks about that. She talks about why she wrote the novel. And um, she also talks about an event that she has, right? A kickoff event. Yeah, her launch event is going to be at Women and Children First, which is a indie bookstore in Chicago that has been around for many decades. Different owners, but um, they're still going strong. So her launch event will be there, and then she does have other events, digital events around the country. So do check out her website and catch some of those events, because as Amelie said, Kathleen's just so interesting to listen to. I yeah. think you'll enjoy our interview, and then we hope you'll catch some more of her events. Yes, and we will put all the information on how to see the events that she has coming up in the show notes. So be sure to check that out as well, and we hope you really enjoy our interview with her. Right. We'll see you again next week with our regularly scheduled episode. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading. We're so excited today to have with us Kathleen Rooney. Kathleen is the founding editor of Rose Metal Press, a nonprofit publisher of literary work in hybrid genres, and a founding member of Poems While You Wait, which is this really awesome team of poets and their typewriters who write poetry on the spot commissioned poetry on the spot, I should say, which I think is just a fabulous way to get poetry out in the world. Kathleen also teaches English at DePaul University in Chicago. She's a reviewer and critic, a poet, and a novelist. Many of you know her due to her best-selling novel, Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk, and we're here today to talk with Kathleen about her new novel, which is coming out August 11th, Cher Ami and Major Whittlesley. And we both stumble over that Whittlesley name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a tricky one. Yeah. Maybe you can give us a brief synopsis of the book, including how you pronounce the title correctly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My book, as you said, is uh, Shara Me and Major Whittlesey. And I think 
you know, the sort of synopsis is in a way built into the title. And so it is about two characters, uh, one of whom is Cher Ami, who's this homing pigeon. Um, they're both real people uh, or real, I guess, I, yeah, I'm going to stick to people. I think we can extend personhood to animals. And I think, you know, I don't want to jump ahead of questions, but one of the things that I was excited about this book is that it's half from Cherami the pigeon and half from um, Charles Whittlesey the soldier. And so they were both together in this sort of cataclysmic battle in World War One, the Battle of the Meuse-Argonne Forest. And I won't go too deep into this short synopsis into the military history, but um, sort of the two of these characters came from very different backgrounds and then their lives intersected over this five-day battle and this incident. And basically, Cherami is the pigeon who carried this message during a friendly fire incident that saved this group of soldiers from being killed by their own forces. And so I think, you know, uh, she's a cute pigeon, she's stuffed, she's in the Smithsonian. And I hope that her, her cuteness and her sweetness comes through. But I tried really hard to make it a book that's actually about this pretty serious incident. Um, and that I think was so famous at the time, but most people have never heard of now. So kind of like with Lillian, I wanted to bring these two figures who I thought were remarkable back into the light and um, make them part of our ongoing conversation now, a hundred years later. Emily has finished the novel. I'm halfway through at this point and I am in love with Jeremy. And I, you know, I went through a phase where I read a lot of World War One novels and memoirs and I, I got a little bit burnt out. So when I first saw the subject matter of your novel, I thought, hmm, we'll see. I was immediately drawn in and I love both of these characters and I love how much you have so much historical background and details yet it's so full of humor and living and life and the struggle but the beauty of it at the same time thank you yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate, um, I'm glad that, thank you for finishing it and um, thank you for being halfway through. And I think, you know, just to jump in, I think I, I've been really fascinated with World War One since I was a kid. And so I, I think the reason I wanted to write this is it's a story I hadn't heard. And then I also knew with the pigeon I could look at, like you said, I mean, it's material that those of us who follow that period of history are probably really, really familiar with, but it gives it the obvious pun that I'm just going to go for is the bird's eye view um, <laughs> that we haven't seen or that I haven't seen, you know, as far as I know, there hasn't been this like pigeon based account. So I, I'm glad that you found it unusual. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Very unusual. And also, I mean, I wondered how you researched not only, you know, obviously this event, but also just, you know, pigeonhood, I'm going to read just a little piece of the book where um, Sheremy's talking about her parents and being raised by her parents. And she says, the fact that birds can produce milk surprises most humans and their mammalian cousins who assume themselves to hold a monopoly on lactation. <laughs> and then you go on to describe, you know, how they do produce milk and feed their young. So how did you research both that part of World War One and being a pigeon? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I love research. And I think um, it's my favorite phase. I've, you know, said this before, because in the research phase, your book is going to be the greatest, right? When you're just in research, it's going to be the best book about pigeons ever. And then of course, you start writing it. And you know, it becomes a more real thing. And it's, it's less perfect than you imagined. But I got really into reading not just 
from our time period looking back at World War One, but accounts of World War One at the time, which I think is really helpful when you're doing historical stuff. So I, you know, for the Whittlesey stuff, I really focused on newspaper stories and articles from the day because the, I mean, the sad thing at the time, but the great thing for a researcher is that the Lost Battalion, this group of soldiers he was part of, became so notorious, so renowned, like the entire, you know, home front, the world was sort of watching and following these breathless accounts in newspapers by, um, I make Damon Runyon a character because he was covering it. Um, but the New York Times, I mean, because they were a group of soldiers from New York, and because New York is so big in sort of the collective imagination, there was tons of material sort of about their experience. And then with the pigeons, you know, pigeons used to be so beloved by humans. It's a recent thing that you hear them called rats with wings or dismissed as dirty. And, you know, prior to about the 60s, pigeons and humans lived so closely together. I mean, they were a food source, which I don't love as a vegetarian. <laughs> but, I, you know, they were pets. They were um, companions. They were raced. They were used for communication, as you see in the book. So there's all this wealth of, of information. And so I just got a lot of books from about like the 1890s to the 1920s to kind of immerse myself in pigeon behavior books so that I could kind of write how Cherami would act and what it would be like to be her. And then also what the sort of pigeon carriers, the you know Signal Corps guys, the soldiers who would have been the pigeon men would have known and would have done and how they would have cared for them. So it was really um, I'm glad you liked it. I got so into pigeons. I, I've always loved them, but after reading this book, I'm like a crazy pigeon lady. I'll just like talk your hair off, so I'll I'll stop there. <laughs> Y'all should be following Kathleen's Twitter feed because she posts a lot of really cute pigeon images and videos. I've been really enjoying those. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So why why did they stop? You know what happened in the '60s that they're not so fond of a a pet and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, you know, from what I can tell, it had a lot, again, to do with New York City and sort of the kind of decline, you know, some of what I touched on in Lillian Boxfish, the way that the city went through this neglect and this disinvestment and, you know, the crime going up and the white flight and sort of this, I mean, you kind of see it now in some of the prejudice against cities, this idea of cities as this place of low life or less than and I think the pigeons became this symbol of it and that's when you really started seeing people you know in the like parks commission of New York sort of putting up signs that say don't feed the pigeons or saying they're dirty which was sort of this almost like the broken windows thing where it was instead of focusing on these bigger more systemic structural issues they were focusing on this little window dressing or these tiny things that uh, you know, ultimately didn't necessarily have that much to do with the decline of the city. And then I think the thing that really solidified it is the, I'm loath to talk about Woody Allen, but uh, his movie um, Stardust Memories. And he has the scene where the pigeon gets in and, you know, his character and the female lead talk about how pigeons are rats with wings. And I think, you know, he didn't invent that phrase, but that's what kind of like etched it into the public consciousness. Um, and I think, you know, again, I could go on, but you know, other cities like London, where I think, you know, a thing that I loved as a kid was Mary Poppins, but specifically Feed the Birds, Tuppence of Bag, which brings me to tears just thinking about it. It's such a beautiful song. And it sort of talks about how, you know, charity helps not just the recipient, but the giver, you know, but when they banned feeding the pigeons, like outside St. Paul's or in Trafalgar Square. So I think it it's become closely associated with this idea of what we want cities to be and who we think belongs in cities. And I think it's a sign of gentrification that I don't totally love and I hope my book helps people see pigeons 
as they truly are, which is as incredible creatures. I love the pigeon storyline so much. I've never thought I'd fall in love with a pigeon. I admire them in real life, but this character is is so warm and so noble. And the pigeon's gender was mistaken. So Jeremy was considered a, a male, but she's actually a female. And you do a lot with gender and sexuality in this book, which I found really refreshing for a, a World War I historical novel. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And at one point it said that anti-war fiction is only anti-war fiction if people want to be warned. Um, because so many books, you know, even like All Quiet on the Western Front, which is considered this great war literature, it turns people on who are interested in joining the military. And I served in the military, so I, I get that, the desire for military things and then the horror of the actual lived experience. And so this is, I, I have a really bad habit of asking these roundabout questions, but I'm wondering if you could talk about the gender, sexuality, and this masculine urge for military experience. Yeah, yeah, I love I love roundabout questions. They're great. Um, so thank you for that. And I, you know, I think I'll start sort of with that idea of like, is it possible to write a book about war that is ultimately anti-war? And I hope it is. And I tried super hard to do it. I feel like I hit what I was aiming at, but ultimately that's up to readers. And I think that's the thing. Any book, any subject you do your best and you try to convey your intention. And then once it's in the hands of other people, they're going to do what they're going to do. But I think, I don't want to like spoil the ending, but I feel like it's hard to get to the end of my book and see what happens to Whittlesey and even see what happens to Cherami and just all the other guys in the Lost Battalion and think that war is a net positive. But again, I leave that to readers. Uh, but something that has always interested me, my dad was in the military as well. And so that's kind of where my original interest in World War One developed because he would often teach military history courses. And so he would have all these books out on the table and his thing, he really loves the Civil War as as do many people. But I became fascinated with World War One. And I think the reason has to do with this great question. I just remember when I was, you know, eight or nine or however old being like, what's World War One? What did they do? And when I heard how they fought, just when I heard this idea of trench warfare, of just getting a bunch of guys into a literal muddy pit in the earth where they were living with water and rats and trench foot and gangrene. And then the plan was to just make them go over the top and just advance into this artillery barrage and this barbed wire and these grenades and these mines and these tanks. And that was the plan. And just the fact that for like four years, they just did that over and over and over again. I just, I, it still kind of defies belief that that was something that millions of humans decided was best to have happen. And so every war I think is sad. And I think for me, the only way to win a war is to not fight it. But to me, World War One just like makes those issues writ so large, it's impossible to ignore like the futility and the waste. And so within that, I think to go back to the gender thing, I was fascinated when I learned about this story of how I think it speaks so much to who we, you know, the collective we think can be a hero and what we think a hero looks like and what we think heroism consists of. And I think even today, but especially 100 years ago, there was this assumption that if this pigeon 
was so heroic and like you said, noble and did this thing, she must have been a dude. She must have been a guy because these were the attitudes like World War One still had this old world attitude of masculine nobility and war as this thing that was going to bring manhood back because I'll you know wrap it up soon. But like you have to remember, and I'm sure you know because you've read a lot about it, that around 1914, you know, there was this big shift in society where, you know, rural agrarian kind of blue collar work was shifting to cities. There was this urbanization, there was this white collarization. And so when you go back and read in the period, there was all this like hand wringing on the parts of like male leaders that you know, American and European manhood were going soft and like the phallic connotations are just right there. And so war was going to be this way to take these like sissified city men who were working in offices and show them what it was to be a real man. And so I thought that was interesting. And then, you know, with Whittlesey too, in the research, I can't prove that he was gay, but so much of the research had those euphemisms like confirmed bachelor, no woman involved, no time for the ladies, that it seemed pretty clear that he was probably not straight. And so I think even that too was just like an interesting layer of this like hyper-masculine pursuit of war with these two characters who are not traditionally quote-unquote manly. Yeah. Wow. I, I love this, this story so much and I, I love, I'm, it's great to be talking with you. I can't wait to hang up and keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm really curious um, about your, the process with your editor and particularly when you decided, you know, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be from the point of view of a homing pigeon, you know, if that was a little bit of a tough sell or if they hopped right on right away. So if you could talk a little bit about that process, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, after Lillian came out, Lillian Boxfish, you know, I think it's a great thing when a book does so well, because, of course, every author wants their book to be read, I think, by as many people as possible. And my experience working with St. Martin's and, and Hope Dellen, who I think we'll talk about more, was amazing. And so that that was fantastic. But then, of course, the other sort of element of having a book that's that big of a success is people then kind of want to replicate it. And people want to take what you did before. And since it worked well, do it again, which for a number of reasons isn't always possible. And so I actually did write a book in between Lillian and Cherami, and it wasn't historical fiction, it was contemporary, and it, it didn't sell. And a lot of the responses we were getting was, this isn't Rooney's next move, this isn't like Lillian. Mm. So, say la vie, it happens, every author has a drawer book, at least one that hasn't seen the light of day, and I hope it's sleeping, not dead. Um, <laughs> so then I started writing Cherami, and I, it wasn't out of any, um, like, oh, I better go back to historical fiction, but it just so happened that after I wrote it, it did kind of mirror Lillian in ways that I, I hadn't had top of mind, but now seem quite obvious that it's, you know, obviously it's based on two figures who used to be famous who now aren't. It has a lot to do with, as we've talked about, sort of gender and inclusivity and, um, you know, tradition versus non-tradition or what we expect of, of certain people in the arcs of their lives. But it was a harder sell. And I think you know, Lisa, my agent, warned me when we went out with it. She, you know, she loved it. She never didn't believe in it. But she's like, a lot of people are going to struggle with the pigeon thing. Like, a lot of people think animal points of view are silly or for kids or they're just not going to go with it. Um, and ultimately, we ended up, that's part of why we ended up with Penguin and not St. Martin's. Part of it, Hope was, you know, my editor there was not really 
in a position to be working there anymore. And so that was part of it. But a lot of people were like, we love you. We love this, but we just don't see the pigeon thing working. And so I was very lucky that Margot, my new editor now at Penguin, loved it and believed in it. And she's, you know, been such an advocate and, you know, her edits on it were great. So also she pointed out early on that it was funny that it was penguins and pigeons, that it was this <laughs> bird with bird thing that was kind of meant to be. So I sort of love that too. Yeah, that is a nice thing on your cover. You know, there's Jeremy flying and then the penguin logo. It's really great. So you just mentioned Hope Dellen, and Hope Dellen unfortunately passed away earlier this year, and she was already, you know, approaching legendary editor status, and I think now with her passing, that is solidified, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about what it was like to work with an editor of Hope's caliber. Yeah, absolutely. I always say when I talk about Hope that she changed my life. And she was almost this, to me, I'm working on a new project about fairy tales. So I'll just say, like a fairy godmother. I think that, you know, when Lisa, my agent back in 2015, I remember it was Thanksgiving week of 2015. So it was November, my husband Martin is a writer, and we were in Texas visiting his family, and my cell phone rang, and it was Lisa. And she said, we have an offer. And when she told me it was Hope Dellen, I like had to pinch myself. I couldn't believe it because even then she was already, you know, she'd been in the business for so many decades. She was famous for having taste. She, the thing I remember when I first had my uh, conversation with her was about her Twitter bio because she sort of at one point had it that she was sort of like Mikey from the old life serial commercials. I mean, she would change it, but it was like, Mikey likes it. And she sort of said, I'm Mikey in the publishing industry. Like I'm really picky. Uh, I don't like most things. She was very frank about it. You know, for, for a book lover and someone who dedicated her whole life to literature, she was very frank that a lot of it didn't impress her. Um, and so she, you know, I don't want this to sound like she's being arrogant in any way, but she was very confident in a way that I admired about her own taste and the, the accuracy of her judgment. And so, of course, as someone being judged favorably by Hope, I was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, your taste is amazing. But it was. And I think I, I remember that day, too, when I you know checked my Twitter, because Hope was amazing on Twitter, and I saw that she'd followed me. That's when I knew it was real. Like, even after the phone call with Lisa, I was like, no, this can't be. And then when I saw Hope followed me, I was like, holy cow, it's happening. And then just working with her, you know, I think many people knew her on Twitter and I know, you know, social media isn't real life, but I think some people just have such a personality that it comes through no matter the format and just the way that Hope used Twitter as a citizen. I mean, she hated Donald Trump. She hated what was happening to America. She was such an advocate for justice and such a a clear eyed, you know, visionary for, for how things should be versus how they were. And then also how she used it to support her authors and literature in general. I think that's a testament to what she was like in real life. And I only met her once in real life. And yeah, it's hard for me to talk about her and hard, hard to not, you know, not think of ever seeing her again. You know, I feel her, it sounds silly about somebody that I only met one time in person, but just like working with her on the book made me feel like I knew her so well. And so I'm, I'm just glad, like you say, that she kind of has this legendary status. I think she deserves it. And the good editors are kind of behind the scenes. You know, I mean, you never read a book and think, I mean, maybe you do, but most people don't read a book and think, gosh, that was well edited. But they should. I mean, editors add so much value and hope added so much value to her, her author's work. 
Sadly, I think I, I have to admit, I probably don't think this was well edited. It, the only time I think of editors is when I'm like, you know, this could have used some editing, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, her memory stays on in all of the books that she did edit. So, it's, you know, that's a lovely part. I'm glad she touched your life. Yeah, you too. So Kathleen, we were wondering, you know, this is an odd time to be putting out a book. We all know. How are you handling your launch? Are you going to do a virtual book tour? Do you dial into people's book clubs? Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, it is. Um, 2020 is a very weird time to be doing anything, um, let alone putting out a book. So I think, you know, I'm not sure how it's going to go, but I feel like Penguin, my publisher, and like a lot of publishers at this point, you know, we've been dealing with the pandemic long enough that the pivot has sort of occurred. And so the plan is for a virtual tour. And I think, I mean, knock on wood, that people are finding Zoom events or Crowdcast events maybe more fun than they expected, if that makes sense. You know, I think there's all this conversation about Zoom fatigue and, you know, wondering if people are going to want to, quote unquote, come to these events. But it seems like they are. And so I am going to do my launch at Women and Children First, which is a great feminist bookstore here in Chicago on August 11th, the pub date. And then I'll be that Thursday um, in conversation with Mike Zapata, who's a great Chicago writer, wrote The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, which I love, at the American Writers Museum that Thursday. And then, you know, if you go to my website or Penguin's website, you'll see I've got, you know, more stops taking place. And so I think the most interesting thing is sort of, you know, I'm going to different stores like in Milwaukee or like Majors and Quinn and the Twin Cities. I'm going to probably go, quote unquote, to San Francisco. But of course, it's all through the ether. Mm. Um, and something I'm just thinking about a lot early on in the pandemic, I read Joseph Roth's essays. And he, of course, wrote the Radetzky March. He was Jewish during the 30s. He had to flee his native Austria and live in Paris in exile. And he has this great essay where he sort of says where you're at and like where you're born and where you're from is important. But what's even more important is the time you were born and the time you live. And I think I've just been considering that a lot in relation to 2020, but also in relation to specifically this book tour or this idea of putting something out when place is so restricted, but time is so universally applicable and open. So I think it could be good. I mean, of course, I don't want to sound Pollyannish. I wish there weren't a pandemic and I wish I could be with people in physical space. But all things considered, I think it is kind of exciting that you can have these events that people can come to wherever they're at. So we'll see. Yeah. 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 I know in my own experience, it's really exposed me to authors that I may have not heard about before, you know, with the promotion of online events. Yeah. So I hope you'll find a lot of new readers. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about place, I'm really curious. I know at least one of your earlier books was set in Chicago. You're Chicago, born and raised, I, I believe. And yeah, your last two novels are kind of set in New York and the World War One battlefield. Are there any plans for a Chicago novel in the future? Yeah, yeah, there are. So I, you know, I mentioned the fairy tale thing. And so I'm working now on, it's drafted, but it's not done. It's out with readers. A book that is set in Chicago and in Hollywood. It's based on a silent movie star. And so she was not from Chicago, but Chicago was important in her life and kind of became her home later in life. So that I hope fingers crossed, when it's done will be my Chicago, another Chicago book. Because I love cities in general, but I love Chicago. And so the chance to write about it is exciting. And I think 
I think I did a good job capturing Chicago. I mean, it's set in the 60s, like the parts of Chicago are mostly set in the 60s and the 1910s. So I don't actually know what it was like then. But I think, again, with the research, I I had fun trying to imagine my city now as it would have been back in the day. Mm, Cool. Yeah. Well, one of the things I loved about Lillian was the fact that, you know, you felt like you were taking a walk through the city and really it was a love story to the city. So I have every confidence that Chicago will will shine in this new book. Definitely. That's exciting. Thank you very much. I have a question of what it's been like to teach during this time for you. Yeah, that's a great question. So DePaul is on quarters. I teach at DePaul here in uh, the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago. And, you know, because of the quarter system, we didn't have that thing that a lot of semester-based places did where we had to kind of like change horses midstream. We were actually able to finish the winter quarter and then go on spring break and then come back all online. And I think my, my biggest thing that I like to say when I'm talking about this is that I think some people have this idea that going online is so easy that teachers just go like beep, boop, beep, and like push some buttons and boom, you're online. And it's actually, my instructional designer friends call it translation. It's a big act of translation. And if you think of translating an entire book, it really is kind of like that effort of taking all the material and making it work in this new format. So um, I would say that I miss face-to-face and I, I love the magic that can happen in the classroom, but DePaul is gonna be all online in the fall, which I think is wise from a public health perspective. And they've been great. Like they put a lot of us through this online teaching training. So we all spent the month of June doing this really intensive work on learning best practices and how to make it work. And I think the other thing I always like to say when I talk about online, I think, yes, we all wish we could be face-to-face, but I think online learning can actually be really valuable and in a way I'm not I don't want to replace face to face but more people can get involved and I think the accessibility once you get past you know certain technological stuff can actually go up like there's none of that you know 25 person class where the same eight people talk all the time Mm -hmm. and everyone else is quiet like with discussion boards and with these assignments in small groups at least as I do it everyone participates and so I was loath to have to admit that there might be silver linings about online teaching, but I think at least for a discipline like creative writing, whereas as you both know, you know, so much of it is solitary. When you're reading, you're usually by yourself. It's just this voice in your head. It actually kind of translates okay to online teaching. So I'm eager to be back in the classroom when it's safe, but I think for now, I feel like my students are going to have fun and we're going to learn a lot. And um, I think creative writing is one of the disciplines that crosses over well. Yeah, and I'm glad that DePaul took the time to really train you because I know a lot of teachers are struggling with that. So kudos to them and, and to the students who benefit to, from that. So. Totally. Well, thank you both so, so much. Um, I'm a fan. I really appreciate what you guys do for literature and, and readers and books. So thank you for having me on. I've loved it. It's so good to see you, too, and we wish you so much luck with this new book. Thank you. Yeah, we look forward to attending some of your events. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) I've actually really enjoyed being able to go to, like, go to the bookstores that I wouldn't typically be able to go to. You know, that has been the silver lining for me, for sure. Totally. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in one week. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.
Wow!